Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with, get ready for this, director, writer, producer, actor, and brother, Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass and his brother Jay struggled painfully for 10 years to make their first successful film. It was a seven-minute short with bad lighting and a budget of $3. That's true. And after that, everyone in Hollywood wanted to make their next film. Turns out everyone in Hollywood also has a few conditions. It's hard not to accept those conditions when they come with millions of dollars. But Mark feared making a bad movie more than he did going back to a crappy $600 apartment and embarrassing high school reunions. That in itself is heroic. But what blows me away is how he's managed to ignore almost every rule in the business and make films exactly the way he wants to. The Puffy Chair, Cyrus, the Dodecapentathlon, and his latest, Blue Jay, all bear his trademark take on big universal themes disguised in small, detailed moments. There's a reason he's not making superhero movies. There's also a reason he's been called independent film's most valuable asset. In this conversation, Mark talks about his fear of failure and his fear of success. I was also fascinated by his relationship with his brother and producing partner, Jay Duplass. And for a guy who calls himself the second most melancholic person on the planet, he's one of the most inspiring artists I've ever met. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Mark. Hello, Sam. Thanks for coming and doing this. It's a nice beard you got going, too. Thanks, man. You got one coming. Is it coming or is it going? It's sort of just there. It's just there. Yeah. You, you maintain know, him? I, well, I don't like shaving. Yeah. But I don't like big beards because they're scratchy, so I'm one of those middle guys. This was really scratchy on the way in, very torturous. I grew it for my new movie, Blue Jay. Yeah. And I almost lost it a couple of times. Had a couple of big existential moments in the mirror where I was just like, I can't fucking do this anymore. And then I, I worked through it, and now... Not only is the itch gone now, but I, what I can say is that I actually had to shave it and then I grew it back out for a separate project. And the second time it grew in, it was a lot less itchy. Really? It was like that first time I needed to transcend it. And now, like, you know, I've broken through that glass ceiling <laughs> of a beard itch. Maybe you're just a beard guy from now on. I might be, man. There's a couple of, I mean, obviously the shaving thing is a huge uh, advantage. Um, if you're, you're, oh, you seem to be okay, but like, I can get a little bit of that, like, double chin thing. Oh, yeah. The beard has a lot of lot of positives. Has a lot of positives, yeah. yep. So you mentioned Blue Jay. Yeah. Uh, first off, it's shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Sarah Paulson is your co-star in the film, and it's really just the two of you. Pretty and, much. And uh, one convenience store guy. Yeah. But I feel like it is such a... I mean, it is an exercise in realism, and it feels almost like a documentary. It feels like a very intimate look that's not afraid to have awkward moments and about very small things. It, it seems like the perfect film for your sensibility. It, it in many ways is. I'm probably a much more uh, melancholic and nostalgic person than people might guess. Like, I can come into a room and like be up and I get excitable, but my general state in the world is kind of melancholic and a little sad. Like, I, I had a nice long drive over here, listening to the Red House Painters, just going into my little <laughs> slightly sad world. And for this movie, I kind of let myself just fall right into that. I guess I curb that element of myself a little bit, uh, not only in my art, but maybe even in my personal presentation. I don't know why I do that. Um, and for this movie, I was like, what if I just just go headlong into my weird kind of malaise and just see what happens. Um, and, and so it was an interesting process for me because normally I, I almost reverse engineer my movies for success. I, I think, like, I'll make it at this budget level. It's about this kind of thing. I know if I uh, deliver this kind of poster and trailer, everybody will come see it. And then I fill that movie with what I know how to do well. And I really enjoy that, and it's been very good for my career. But this one was much more of a childlike process where I was chasing a feeling more than anything else, chasing the feeling you have when you run into someone who knew you a long time ago and you avoid them for some reason. 
And it's not necessarily because you're doing poorly in life. Like, my life is better than I ever thought it could have right, been. Right, right. Yet still I have shame and, and weird feelings, and I don't want them to look in my eyes and see who I am because it's different who I was then. And it reminds me of that, and it just felt so loaded to me. So I just kind of sat down and started hammering away at this idea. Um, but also, it, the movie also came together very quickly, too. So the, the way I kind of liken it is like certain bands or certain records are made when you, you write all the songs over a course of a year. They're rehearsed. You've toured with them. You demo them. You go in the studio. You know exactly what to do. You get the mics in the right places. It's clean. It's pristine. It's beautiful. I love those records, like a Steely Dan record or something. It's sure. great. And then there are other people that go in the studio and they don't have the songs yet. And they're trying to figure it out. And then while they're recording, sometimes the mic isn't in the right place. And sometimes there's like aberrations in the playing because, or like their throat cracks because they're crying when they're singing it. And, and the song is recorded in the moment it's being birthed. And I love that shit. I mean, that, that makes me crazy. And so that's kind of what I wanted for Blue Jay was like, let's record it during the chase. What I hear you saying is you almost want to capture mistakes or capture lightning in a bottle or the first time you have a thought to see it come across your face and the camera's there then. That is what I want. I want to create an environment where lightning might strike. Um, and I don't know how to create an environment where lightning definitely will strike. I don't know that anyone knows how to right. do that. But the fear that it might not strike is a good thing because it keeps everybody alert, everybody's a little scared, everybody's a little vulnerable, and not to mention, I mean, I'm sure you can identify with a little bit of this, like you've made a lot of really great things at a relatively young age as an artist, so like where does the excitement come from now, you know? And for me, it's in the, I might not get anything. Like we're, we were in there with a 10-page outline, two characters, a house, chasing a feeling. Not a lot of plotting going on in this movie specifically. And we were very clearly thinking, like, we might make something really lyrical and poetic and quiet and natural and subtle, or it might be fucking boring as shit because well, we don't have fear. a lot going on here. It's never really at this point the fear of making something that's going to suck because you've been there enough. You've had enough experience but to get But the fear is yeah. to make something boring, isn't it? M middling. Middling. It's maybe one of the worst words. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's possible. So compare yeah. Blue Jay's script with a normal script on a normal film. The way I started was um, I built the whole thing from scratch. You know, I basically just have gotten to the place in my career where I've been lucky enough to have acting jobs that have made me money and so I kind of take that money and reinvest in my little movies so I get to do kind of whatever I want. And so I had this idea about two ex-high school sweethearts and it started with that impulse of why when you see someone from your past do you look away sometimes and fake like you don't see them and why do you posture when you're with them and, and what is that all about and, and I didn't really even know what it would be but I was excited to chase it. Yeah, because yeah, I want to know that yeah. answer, too, because so I, I do the same I thing, the and same I don't shit. know why I like, do what, it. What's wrong with you? Like, you know? So I called Sarah Paulson, who I knew a little bit socially, and immediately was struck by how beautifully goofy, silly, fart-jokey she was in contrast to, like, Marsha Clark or the woman she played in Carol, like these austere, like, 1940s film goddess things I've seen her do. I was like, oh, she's, like, the normal girl, too. But what made you think of her in the first place? Because after I had met her, I had met her before I'd written this this outline, and okay. so and so I knew she had that energy, and I hadn't seen her goofy energy on screen yet. And I said, "We got to get this. This is great." And she and I had good chemistry, and I felt like there was enough there. And and then I wrote her a two-page outline of the basic plotting of the movie, but still missing quite a few scenes. She liked it. Then I put together. The Room, which was six people, myself, Sarah, uh, my three female producers. I, I love being surrounded by women. They keep me honest. Their sensitivity and help me with writing of female characters, all that stuff. I just, that's just what I do. And then my director, Alex Lehman, who is a documentary filmmaker and who I asked if he would DP the movie and direct it and just be holding the camera. So we would follow that documentary ethic. You know, There's no real blocking. We're not sure what's going to happen, so you just kind of 
follow us around with the camera. And we would have these two-hour creative sessions over the course of a few weeks. And we would say, okay, what is exciting about this? What is not exciting about this outline? How can we beat this scene? But perhaps most importantly, I asked Sarah directly, I was like, what's going on in your life right now inside you that is going to make you um, great on camera? That when you're talking about this subject, that thing is going to light up in your face. And one thing that became like clear to me right off the bat, and you'll see it in the movie, is like Sarah, when she talks about animals, um, is just unique. I can tell Sarah wants to live simply like animals. She deeply loves them, is deeply protective of them. There's so much going on when she talks about animals, in particular uh, a certain breed of dog, that I was like, okay. Well, I'm going to write you a scene about that and fit it into the movie so that when I turn that camera on, you know it's going to be great. And that's almost like a jam in the key of C where you got two chords and you're just like, let's lay these down and just right. let her solo on top of it and it's going to be amazing, you know? That's th so interesting. But then there are other scenes that where you're like, oh, we have nine plot points to get out over the course of this scene and it's a long scene. So I will plot those out and I'll write pages for that script the night before we shoot. Really? So there's not enough time to memorize them, but it gives you a guideline and a base um, and something about looking at those scenes for a second, but not being able to sit and rehearse them over the course of four weeks in a mirror that it just makes you have to listen. I mean, you, you have to listen in a way that you can't when you have memorized lines in a certain way. It's just a different thing. So when you're listening, you're not only listening for what she's saying, but you're, you're trying to find the path that this, where you're supposed to go. Where you're supposed to go. And, and is she doing the same thing? Does she? 100%. And she's, I mean, Sarah is big, big brain power. I mean, so she, I knew she understood this. I knew she understood narrative very well. I mean, Sarah could write a movie. It would be great. She gets it. Um, and and it, one thing that helps, in my opinion, make the scene... How do I say, uh, it gives it a better chance of being successful is that when you're in a tightly scripted movie, um, your ability to shape shift and maneuver to make something better is limited to your intentions as an actor. You can only use your intentions. But when you're in an improvised movie, you can use your intentions and your words. Right. And what ends up happening is, and you'll see this in the movie, is like um, Sarah is a, is a quiet actor um, and Sarah doesn't need as many words as I need to express things because she does it with her spirit through her eyes like uh, it just comes out of her face I need a little bit more words for whatever reason I think I'm just a natural writer but you'll watch on these movies if you could see the dailies you'll see like take one we're falling into it we are getting used to it and we're using all these words and we're all verbose to express ourselves and then we start feeling it and then the words start to come away and you start to use more of your face stuff you know right right um and so it to me it allows you to chase the truth a little bit easier because it just gives you an extra tool do you have to sort of make some decisions on the day in terms of that's the take that we're living with or are you are you sacrificing coverage to to get those moments. We're usually shooting our movies in chronological order, right? Uh, so that you know we shoot for eight to ten hours. We have a big dinner together with the cast and crew, and it's, it's usually only fifteen to twenty people. And we talk about what's working, what's not working as well, or most importantly, what from a interpersonal dynamic perspective is different than we imagined. For instance, when they meet in the grocery store. Was it as awkward as we thought they were going to be? Was there more of a sexual spark? Was there less of a friendship spark? Oh, it's what, awkward. What's, yeah, it's awkward as shit, you know? <laughs> so so we, we talk about that and we say, okay, good. That was a little bit different. This was 20% more this way than we thought. So now we can adjust the next scene the next day and, and, and allow it to be sort of like an organic mapping of things. Right. So you don't have to predict it from the outset and shoot the last scene of the movie on the first day I don't know how filmmakers do that. Like, the Coen brothers can do it, I think. I think when they write a movie, they see the whole thing in their head as like a comic book strip, and they just go out and they exact it. And I am in awe of that. I don't possess anything near that skill set. I can galvanize a bunch of people, 
the smartest, most talented people I know, get a story that's like 80% successful on its feet, and then plop us in a room and then be like, let's stay really vigilant and hope we get lucky and chase this thing. You know, and that's the only way I really know how to do it. But I think what you're talking about is two very different styles of film. Yeah. Not even filmmaking, but styles of film. Yeah. But that's a good window into, I think, something I read about you is that, you know, as kids, you and your brother, you sort of looked at the Coen brothers and said, we want to be that, or, yeah. or that's the thing to be. And through the course of your your path... Our failures. Your failures. Yeah. You find, okay, so... So what I took away from that was there is, I mean, in my life, I find that I can overwork myself mm. and take my own personal gut feelings or impulses out of things because yeah. I don't trust that they're good enough. Yeah. So instead, I will somehow work my way into mm. something, and yeah. maybe I'm leaving out the most original, the, the most valuable part of me. Did you, did you kind of go through that process? Absolutely. I mean, I think that for us... We were good Catholic boys, and we really were raised to believe that, like, if you just work your ass off and check all the things on the checklist and follow the rules, you're going to do great. And, and I think that can apply to certain trades, you know? It could probably apply to maybe law school and stuff like that. Sure. Medical school, I yeah. think. Yeah, and so we followed that, and part of that was going to film school and learning how to properly budget and schedule a film and to hire all the right people in all the right positions and ask them to do their jobs and place the mic at this exact angle. And we got so obsessed with the propriety of everything that we literally built this gorgeous, perfectly layered hamburger with the toasted bun and the lettuce and the cheese and the tomato and the aioli and everything. And we're like, oh, we forgot the hamburger. We forgot the meat of the thing in there. Right. And it scared the shit out of us because we did not know how to do anything else. And so what, what, luckily, what happened to us is after struggling for many years to try to figure out what we were good at, what we had to offer, we really believed we had something. You know, we really believed, like, when Jay and I were at a party, we could, we could light it up with a certain kind of conversation and, and, and we could talk about people in ways that were interesting and, and, and felt insightful. We just didn't know how to get it out into an art form that was interesting. And one day when I think I was 24 and Jay was 28, uh, we were living in Austin in our like shitty little apartment. And I was like, Jay, we're making a movie today. You know, and I'd done this before. This is the nature of our dynamic. I'm like always trying to push us off the cliff. And Jay's always just like, all right, well, let's just <laughs> don't get crazy. You know, so, so um, you're sort of the, the... I'm the I'm a bull. You know, I'm just barreling forward with not enough. Uh, honestly, I don't discern enough at times. Like, if I was left to my own devices, I'd probably make a hundred bad movies a year. And if Jay was left to his own devices, he would make one-third of the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> um, and somehow together we find a thing. Um, and so I was like, look, we're going to make a movie today. And he's like, well, we don't have a camera, we don't have lights, we don't have a first AD. And I was like, uh-uh. Forget all the shit we learned in film school. Forget it all. Like, mom and dad's video camera. That's enough. With the onboard microphone and the dead pixel in the center. We're going to use that. Right. And I was like, we're going to make a movie. And he said, you know, what's it going to be about? And then of course, I was like, I don't know. you got to figure that out. I'm going to get a tape. And I'm coming back. And I did. And when I came back, he's like, okay. I tried to record the outgoing greeting of my answer machine for the last movie we were making. And it took me like 20 tries to get it right. And I almost like had an emotional breakdown. And I was like, ooh. I was like, this, that feels, that's interesting. Okay, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to improvise this. I'll be you improvising it and you just film me, you know? And literally turn the lights on in the kitchen, left the fridge plugged in, shot for 20 minutes, felt great. We didn't know, but we were like, this felt like us when we were little, following our instincts. All communication was nonverbal, very Neanderthal-like. And we edited it down and it was our first movie that got into Sundance. And... And that has set the tone for everything we're doing today, which is as much as possible to trust that like weird little voice inside of us that's saying like, Sh shoot Blue Jay in black and white. And then this other side of my voice is like, dude, that's pretentious. Don't make black and white narrative movies in 2016. Everybody's going to call you pretentious. The critics are going to tear you apart for that. Don't, don't do that. Just think of, you want it to be in black and white, you feel it, 
go for it. Just trust it. Just try that, you know? And the more I do that, the, the better off I am generally. Okay, so I'm fascinated with that moment when an idea comes along, mm. the, the answering machine idea, yeah. and to be able to stop and go, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of filmmaking is feeling like your idea is enough yeah. to, for it to be a film. I, I mean, I, I would have this moment even after I dropped it in the mailbox of like, I gotta get that back. We did, we did have that, by the way. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't think, oh, we know this is gonna get into Sundance. We thought, let's just send it on a lark and let's just see, you know? But, but, it's funny but getting that, that validation has given me confidence since then, for sure. Right, because I think Blue Jay is also, it, it's, it's funny, it's, I, I, I don't wanna, I don't want to say it's about very small things, because mm -hmm. the things it's about are actually the biggest things in the world. Yeah. But the moments that you choose to highlight in that film are often the smallest things. Yeah, I, I like try to, I talk about it as being epically small. Um, it's just like if you go tiny, 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 tiny into the minutia and you spend a lot of time there, then you can actually, it kind of starts to explode a little bit and gets a little bigger. So have you noticed some sort of indicator in your brain when, when something is said in the room or something's thought of I mean, it can't be that different from songwriting, right? Yeah. When, when you have an idea that comes up and you go, oh, that, that could be a song. Yes. And, and for a movie, is it that simple? It starts that simply, but not all of them make good films, you know, is an, uh, the unfortunate reality. So that's why I have 100 ideas in a document, because some of them either are not enough or I'm not ready to make them just yet. But I'm also entering a new phase of my career, which I guess is like, from that moment I made that short film, This Is John, um, I was such a, quite honestly, damaged artist and so afraid to make more artistic failures that all I was willing to do at that point in time was chase things that I knew could work because I couldn't stand the idea that I might try something and fail. I'd had too much of that. So from This Is John forward through, it was like, okay, I made a short film for $3 and it worked. I'm now gonna make another short film for $100. It's still gonna be set in a kitchen. It's only gonna be one other actor. And I kept building things brick by brick. And I said, okay, I'm gonna take those same actors and those were eight minute short films that worked. So I'm gonna make 11 eight minute scenes in a row and that's gonna be a feature film, The Puffy Chair, you know? And I'm glad I did that, um, and it taught me a lot, and I think it was uh, the right approach for me, because it basically, bite-sized chunks, right? Uh, things that I felt like I could handle. Um, but now I've, I've done a lot of that, and I feel like I've weirdly like climbed to the top of a few career mountains. Like my first career mountain was like, get, get a movie into Sundance and like show it there, you know? And then I was like, oh, I did that. And I was like, maybe I'll be able to make a whole living out of this, you know, and then I'm, I like moved to the east side of Los Angeles and I got an agent and then I started getting jobs writing scripts and jobs acting and I was like, I'm making a living, I'm at the top of this mountain, you know, and, and something new is happening for me now, which is for the first time in a long time, I'm willing to take some pretty wild risks and willing to fail again and Blue Jay was my first big step in that process, which was it's the first time I've gone into a movie without a really strong sense that I could make it great. You know? Really? Yeah, because it happened very quickly. It was, I came up with the idea, I started organizing these little fireside chats or whatever they were with my, with my six collaborators. And then we were shooting within six weeks of coming up with the initial idea. And then we had wrapped edit on the film and locked picture within another six weeks. So three months. Was so the tell whole me how, thing. how many days you shot on. We that shot thing. for seven days. Seven days. And it sounds it sounds crazy because most movies are shot for four weeks or more. But if you look at the outline for Blue Jay, you'll see that it's designed to be shot in a short amount of time. It's really like fifteen long scenes. Right. So really, what we're doing is shooting like two longish scenes a day, you know? And any filmmaker knows that the difference in time that it takes you to shoot a one minute scene in a location versus a 10 minute scene in a location, it doesn't take 10 times as long. It only takes right. about 1.2 times as long. It's just that the takes are a little longer. So I've learned how to build movies that can successfully be shot in a small amount of time. Um, and a lot of it has to do with my playwriting background. You know, I mean, you look at Blue Jay and we've made it cinematic and we've done some things to it, but you could throw that movie on the stage and it could work too. But I think the excitement I get when I think about your career is that there's so much unnecessary 
time wasted, money wasted, people wasted in the film business, and I think it scares most people away. Yeah. And the fact is, if you could bang out a rough draft off an idea in less than a week, and then you start playing around and workshopping it, and then you bring up cameras, yeah. I would think you could more quickly arrive at the place where you can take more risks and believe in yourself more, because you 100%. have more, right? So can you talk 100%. a little bit about that dichotomy of, you know, the way people think film, the film business is versus yeah. how you've figured out your own system? Yeah, I mean, I totally had this weird like year uh, after I made the puffy chair when I moved to Los Angeles and and it was so exciting because everyone wanted to meet with us and everyone was like we're gonna make your next movie and my brother and I went around town doing what's called general meetings um, for the better part of a year um, and every meeting was everyone telling us we want to make the, your next movie we want you to do this for us we want you to do this it was so exciting so much ego blowing and and then we kind of looked up and we're like we haven't made anything. What's happening here? Like, everybody says they want to make something, but, like, when you bring it to them, they, no, they really don't. They kind of maybe want your next thing. And we started joking around, and we're like, oh, this is why people don't get stuff made, because all they do here, unfortunately, is talk about making movies. And so we called our agents, and we were like, well, that's it. We're never taking any more general meetings again. And they were like, no, 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 general meetings, are, that's how movies get made, you know, and we're like, nope, we have a new motto, make movies, not meetings, we're done with meetings, and it taught us a really, really great lesson, which is basically that, like, the development process of films is 99% of the time that people spend in this industry, talking right. about making them, trying to attach talent so they can get their $5 million of foreign financing to do this thing, and it is a fucking nightmare. Yeah, and there are people, and I will. This is a totally valid criticism who have criticized my approach to to making movies and saying like, "Man, you gave it away." Like the Puppy Chair was such a great script. You could have cast huge movie stars in that movie. You could have made it for twenty million dollars at this place. And my my answer is maybe, but why wait on maybe when I have a definite in front of me at all times? So our ethic really has always been just like we, we make almost 100% of what we develop because I don't develop anything that I know can't be made by me. And, and Blue Jay is a very good example of that. And strangely enough, I never thought my career was going to be this. I thought it was, you know, I grew up watching like Richard Linklater movies and Jim Jarmusch movies and Steven Soderbergh. You make a couple of independent films, or maybe just one, and then you get promoted into Hollywood. Right. And that independent film was just a stepping stone to get there. And so I actually kind of did that. I made The Puffy Chair, and then I was like, okay. And then I went and made Cyrus for Fox Searchlight, and I made Jeff Lose at Home for Paramount. And I, I did get to make those movies exactly how I wanted to, but I almost died doing it. So much fighting and so much... Um, just tenacity to our vision in the face of, in all fairness, a lot of money they spent on those movies that they needed to recoup. And I completely understand that and do not fault them to say, man, you put like $7 million here, you need to make that back, you know? And, and people have asked us, like, why aren't you guys going out and like making like superhero movies and we've had conversations about that and it's not like we're getting tons of offers but we have had opportunities and and all I can think is like that's a commodity and it should be a commodity they're investing 200 million dollars into that you better be careful you better talk everything to death so that you can get that money back so I'm just I just kind of got there and I was like I don't like this I want to be in the smaller space at the bottom of the fish tank where like all you really have to do is just like recoup those few hundred thousand dollars you spent on that movie right. so that you can live to fight another day. And, like, I don't know. I had this weird thing happen to me when, when I discovered independent film where, like, I would go to my video store in the mid-'90s when I was in my teens, and I was finding all these old, like, early 70s Hollywood movies that I'd never heard of, like these Bob Raffleson movies yeah. and stuff. And I was like, what are these things, you know? And they didn't, like, get a lot of theatrical release but they were around. They were on video to be seen by me 30 years later. And that's like the biggest goal I have is like, I don't need to go out on 3,000 screens with Blue Jay to be feeling good about it. What I need is to make the movie exactly the way I want to make it 
and know that it's going to go out on Netflix and a, you know, a few million people will see it there. And then maybe 20 years down the line, some kid's going to stumble across it and be like, what is this thing? Yeah. And that's like, that's all I need. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you think you may be depressed, or if you're feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Now, with BetterHelp, you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, such as, you know, anxiety, depression, grief. They deal with relationships, sleep disorders, LGBT matters, self-esteem, family conflict, and more. They can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. So what you do is you fill out a questionnaire and it helps assess your specific needs and you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. Everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, at no additional charge. So join the million-plus people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option for therapy, and our listeners get 10% off the first month with the discount code CAMERA. You can get started today at BetterHelp.com CAMERA. That's BetterHelp.com CAMERA. Now back to the show. Do you ever sit down and go, if we didn't make, say, Jeff who lives at home yeah. for Paramount, what could you have made it for? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those movies, it was great. We all made good salaries and togetherness, even our HBO show. Everybody made great salaries. We got to do what we wanted to do. And, like, you know, I think the reason togetherness is not around anymore is because it was, it got too bloated and too expensive to make, you know? And, and that was kind of like the last straw for me with togetherness of like, I put myself in a position to not be in control of whether I wanted to make that show anymore. And it was a very vulnerable position. And, you know, I kind of got my heart broken a little bit. And, since then, I've realized, like, okay, it's probably a good thing because it sucked up so much of our time and energy that, like, Jay and I are now free to go do things like Blue Jay. And, 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 and if I'm being totally honest, like, I don't know that I could have made a good season four or five of Togetherness. Like, keep that relevant and keep chasing those characters and be in love with them, you know? But what I, what I know now is, like, I don't want to put myself in a position where some company owns my thing and they get to tell me when or how I get to make it. And I'm really fortunate that I have enough money to pay for my stuff and I also like little things. Like my tastes happen to just align with Blue Jay, you know? Right. And, and, and it makes me wonder, can you apply the idea of independent film the way you're talking about with Blue Jay to television and just make a whole season and, and license it and sell it. Yeah. And, and is that sort of your ultimate goal is to just be your own? That's, it was never my goal to be my own studio, but it is what has happened. You know, and I can't, I look at it sometimes and I'm like, on paper, Jay and I look really smart for what is happening now. And, and it's not false modesty. We never planned on it. It was just our taste level and our unwillingness to budge from what we want to do and how we want to do it that kept driving us back towards, well, fuck it, we'll just do it ourselves. Well, fuck it, we'll just do it ourselves, you know? Right, because that doesn't feel good. It just feels like uh, we can do it better yes, and faster exactly. and cheaper. It was not like me trying to have some level of high integrity or like having some mastermind plan. Now I understand the business and I've kind of learned it as I've fallen into it and 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 quite frankly I'm kind of interested in it a little bit like you know how do you make art that's relevant and and where are we headed as you know in the business and I guess you know to your point about the concept of independent television you know I came around to that about two or three years ago um, there were these two young guys in New York making these little animated sketches about talking animals and they were like we want to make a TV show out of this and um, I love their stuff, and I was like, I know what's going to happen. We're going to go out. We're going to sell it. They're going to love it. 
They're going to say, great, let's, uh, you got kind of lo-fi black and white 2D animation, the mouths don't move. Let's amp it up a little bit. And we'll inch by inch start to amp it up, and we will lose everything that made it special. And then they'll probably will make a pilot and then not give us a chance to make the series. And we will be heartbroken after two years of work. Right. And so I was like, come to Los Angeles. I'm going to rent you an apartment. We're going to fill it with computers and animators, and you're going to make a whole season of the show, and I'm going to pay for it. And then when we sell it, you know, you guys take half the show and we'll take half the show and we'll own it and we just do our thing. And they were like, that sounds crazy, we'll do it. And thank God yeah, they were Yeah, to make an entire season. Yeah. And what ended up happening is they came out and by the time they made three episodes, I was like, this is incredible. And so we, we, I called Sundance and I was like, what do you think about independent TV? I know you guys just show movies, but like... I want to auction this thing off like, like you auction off movies. And they said, yes. Yeah. So we brought it to Sundance a year and a half ago, and it blew up. And like all the TV buyers ended up showing up, and we sold it to HBO. And they had to not only let us own it and let us do it the way we want to do it, they had to buy two seasons right off the bat because it was so competitive. So we didn't have to go through any of that piloting, any of that bullshit. There has to be... I don't know. When I watched Blue Jay and the opening title comes up mm -hmm. and it's Duplass Brothers Productions and it's a little drawing of one yeah. guy's got the VCR <laughs> thing and the other guy's got the camera. And you just get the sense that you were someone who's found, found a way to retain a childlike artist's view of the world and do it. And I think that that's the thing. Whenever there's a new filmmaker, a new film that comes along that really strikes us, it's because there is that connection to creativity. And, that's and what I'm looking for. I mean, that's what speaks to me. Yeah. And I'm really glad to hear you say that. I mean, it, you know, of course, being inside of it, I, you always feel like you're continuing to try to connect to that person that you were um, when unbridled creativity and, and, in particular, the world was ahead of you and, and anything was possible. And, you know, I came up playing music and we had this little shed in our garage in the suburbs of New Orleans where Jay and I worked like a whole summer to save up money to buy a used drum kit and I would race home from school so that I could be in this dirty shed that was like 110 degrees plus humidity listening to the car's greatest hits on my yellow Walkman and I would just play for hours. And the truth is I've never been happier. And I don't know that I'll ever be that happy again. And I'm chasing that constantly. And that is, uh, you know, uh, part of why I've designed my career this way. It is actually at the very core of Blue Jay, which is Jim and Amanda and Blue Jay are this couple who when they were 16 or 17 together were so ridiculously romantic. They did all this stupid shit together and it's very fun to look at them and laugh at them and kind of make fun of them and see some of ourselves in them. Uh, and then the next thing that immediately happens to me is like, I miss that guy. I mean, I really was like Jim in high school, you know, and, and I miss him desperately. I don't know that I want to be him or could be him again because he was kind of an idiot and like <laughs> he can't keep his life on the rails. Like you and I have daughters. We need to like... yeah. You but, know? They need, but your daughters need to know that guy, They too. need to see that, and, like, I need to feel that, you know? And so I'm always chasing ways to, like, bring that back into my, to my life and myself. And, and it's hard, you know? It's hard to, to tap into. I think that theme runs through a lot of your projects, yeah. of, of trying to go back to finding artifacts and, mm -hmm. and documents that prove who you were as that, yeah. as that kid. But you mentioned something a little earlier, and maybe it ties into the music as well. Is what, you said that you were so afraid of failing. Yeah. And I wonder if you could explain that a little more, yeah. because I think there's also an inherent confidence mm -hmm. to take something that completely is outside of normal convention of what a film's supposed to be right. and call it a film and send yeah. it off. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know, what do you think made you so afraid, or what do you think was at the core it's of that It's a couple of things, you know. I mean, Jay and I grew up in New Orleans, and, and it put us very downstream very quickly. Like, we got through, like, alcohol and weed and rebellion by the time we were, like, 15, you know. And then we were like, now let's start our careers. We're ready to go. And so we've been driving very hard. Uh, to chase some dream of being a musician or being a filmmaker. Did you um, have one specific one at that we, age? We, you know, when we were younger, it felt like music was a thing because it felt we could look and see all these like 
awesome middle-aged black musicians in New Orleans, and they were like our gods. And, and so a model for success was near us with music, and so we said, I see how that could happen. Um, film was like this dream where we're just like, we didn't know any filmmakers, how, we didn't know anything about the form, we were idiots, but there was like a little video camera, so we'd fart around with it. And, Do you remember um, the first thing you made that you stuck into the VCR and, and watched it and like got some sense of magic? Honestly, like I would love to say that like, you know, the Coen brothers and Spielberg, like you can actually look at their childhood films and there's like a small prophecy in there of like the filmmakers they would become. Ours was just like stupid, just dumb. You know, like rolling the beanbag down the stairs and it's a remake of The Blob and there it is, you know. But did you get something out of that? Like, did you get Absolutely. a feeling out of that? Yeah, I mean, well, the first time I really started getting feelings, and this is so embarrassing, but it's part of what Blue Jay is about too, honestly, is the way that Jim and Amanda are in Blue Jay is a lot like how Jay and I were together in high school and, and this um, spiritual obsession with each other. We were soulmates. I mean, we were like twins. And we would do this stuff where like, you know, we were both runners in high school and like I would just like film footage of Jay like running down the street and then I would take it home and I would take my acoustic guitar and I would do live scoring to it and record it on the other audio track in there and that sort of like corny weird poetic stuff was actually the first time I got the feeling of like oh wow there's like magic to be had here and it's like completely unwatchable indulgent stuff but that's where like the juice started coming in for me and and to the failure point that you had of, of, of why I'm so afraid of it is that, you know, it was really physically and psychologically damaging to both of us. You know, Jay and I, have, we don't make it a secret, we've dealt with a lot of anxiety and depression. And I think some of that is just struggling for 10 years to make a piece of art that's good and not being able to make it. Watching all of your friends from this high school we went to become extremely successful as lawyers and doctors and businessmen and and us being like Jay and I graduated at the top of our class and everybody was just like what are Mark and Jay going to do it's going to be amazing and we were like 23 and 27 living in a $600 a month apartment broke and like having to call our parents for money sometimes while our friends were making six-figure salaries in New York being like it's so sad what happened to Mark and Jay so you've had like it was, you put a lot of pressure on It was on bad. Yeah, it was bad. And I, at that time, were you still like and I was keeping the music on, dream? And I was going on tour a lot, and I, I've been playing acoustic guitar. I was like a, a singer-songwriter troubadour, and I developed really bad tendonitis. And, How? Uh, just from the intensity with which I'm describing our approach to career, all went into music. Like, I'm not leaving my room until I write a song, and I'll stay there for 10 hours, and I won't let myself out. And, and that type of approach was really um, damaging, you know? And, and so the, the funny thing that has happened is that that sort of fear of failure Jay and I had has sort of lately found a little more of a positive outlet in, in that we kind of talk about how we wished someone had just like put a hand on our shoulder and just been like, it's gonna be okay. Either you'll make it or you won't, but you're still gonna be fine. And perhaps more importantly, had said, hey guys, you're trying to make this like Coen Brothers movies, but I see you. You're not really like that. You're, you have this wonderful organic sense of humor, and you find funny things and dark things. Like, maybe think about making a movie like this. Go over here. And, and had shepherded us a little bit. It might have saved me a lot of that. So, wow. I mean, I make it sound so serious now, but it's like, it was very hard for me at the time, you know. And, and Jay and I were raised in a household that, it was good. It gave us confidence. That household said, you guys are amazing and you can do anything you set your mind to. And that gave me the confidence to send off that tape. But the flip side of that comment that you hear in your mind is, but if you don't become successful at that, you have squandered all of this and it's your fault. You know? And so like, that's where that pressure and stuff comes from. Do you think that having Jay receive the same message as you, rather than being that person for your for each other that could put the hand on the back, would you both spiral down the anxiety? Hundred percent, and it's what has kept us so close. And Jay and I have literally never had a fight our entire life. We get our feelings hurt, we talk about it, but Jay and I have almost that first uh, generation immigrant mentality of like, this is hard. Grab my hand, 
let's not worry about anything between each other. We got a we got bigger fish to fry. You know God, that concept is just so foreign to me. I grew up on a block with. 12 boys, all within four years of age of each other. And the brothers Murder always party. had it the worst. It was. Yeah. It would be, you know, you'd go over to one of the guy's house, and one kid would just be covered in, like, peach parts. Yeah. The other brother was <laughs> just yep. Yep. on the ground and throwing peaches at him yep. until he was, or whatever. But I feel like I just don't know a pair of brothers that never fought. Yeah. I mean, that must be an astounding thing when you think about it. I am so aware and so thankful of how unique it is. Yeah. And it really, in all fairness, it really is a larger testament to Jay being the older brother as the person to start setting that tone. And he what, let you hang around. What little kid doesn't want to hang out with his cool big brother? You know, he has four years between us and he let me stay with him. Part of that is that Jay is a more vulnerable person in the world than I am by nature. And so I had a confidence that allowed me to maybe play up two years, and I think his vulnerability played him down a little bit, and we would meet there. And I can see it in my own two daughters. It's, it's hilarious. Like, my oldest daughter is like Jay, and my youngest daughter is like me. And I watch them together, and it, the same shit is happening. Um, and, and so I think that, that he did take some comfort in having me there. Um, but, um, and I'm sure he... And to this day, he, you know, like, I, I, I really worship him, you know? I mean, it's just what he was able to do for me and what he is. It just, that's, that's got to feel good to be around, you know? Do you ever think that it's just going to always be one of the first and foremost things in your identity that you're one half of a whole and that's 100%. okay? You've made total peace with that. There 100%. I've made total peace with it in my mind. Uh, from, on a day-to-day basis, there are moments of conflict with it, and Jay and I really have had to figure out, and this is like, you know, a little bit specific, but, you know, um, Jay and I were were like soulmates and we're like a married couple, really. And, you know, talk to any of our ex-girlfriends through high school and college and they'll just be like, those fucking guys were impenetrable. They were a pain in the ass because, like, we would never able to be for them what they were for each other, so it was just, like, useless. So it was just, like, get out of there, you know? Jay and I were in love with each other, but now we're married, and we have our own families, and we have... Jay has a beautiful acting career, and I have a beautiful acting career outside of each other. And so now we have to learn how to essentially be ex-soulmates, yet still remain connected. We have to open up our lives so that we can be close with these other things, um, and that's a very confusing thing, you know, and, um, and we talk about it a lot and we try to get ahead of it, you know, but it makes us sad sometimes, you know, uh, that we can't be what we were and so simple, those weird summers and tucked away in the suburbs of New Orleans where it was just the two of us trying to figure out the world and, and, and that's, that's part and parcel with, with Blue Jay, it's part and parcel with, you know, kind of that melancholy that I talk about. But it makes me wonder how often in those kind of pairings in your films in the dodeca pentathlon yeah. and how often an actor's standing in for one brother. And mm-hmm. if you ever have said, well, we should just do a film together, have you ever considered yeah. acting a- across from each other? We've talked about it. We're like a little scared of it. And it's only recently been something we've talked about because it's only been recently that Jay is really gotten into acting and I think each of us feels like it would be a special thing and we want to wait for the right project and the right moment um, to do it well you know Um, and as crazy as it sounds like I'm not sure I could totally handle that you know it's nice to displace it with one or two levels right it's nice to have a little bit of a um, surrogate for that that's something I want to ask you about your acting is there's a lot of very personal stories that you mine from and Mm -hmm. and and like I think you've said in interviews that before you're 30 pretty much everything you do artistically is autobiographical and I wonder of the roles you've played which one has come closest to you just almost a documentary of yourself yeah. or, or the one that you, you weren't really acting at all but you were just trying your hardest to, to be yeah. yourself. You know, it's interesting because there's two ways to displace myself. Like, if you look at a movie like The Puffy Chair, life station-wise, I was exactly where that person was. I was in a serious relationship and trying to figure out if this was the one where we were going to get married. I was moving away from music. Um, but personality-wise that character is so unemotionally evolved and not aware of his emotions, and that's why it's fun to watch him. Jim in Blue Jay 
is about as different from me life station wise as possible. Like kind of a uh, blue collar guy who's down on his luck and he's got no traction. And so I'm 180 degrees different. But a man who is looking back to his high school self to retrieve some of the, the magic that he once had so that it can brighten up his current life and discover who he is and has the ability to be dragged back maybe too far and too quickly to his detriment. That's 100% me. Still? 100%. Well, in both Blue Jay and Togetherness, you have scenes where there's almost an archaeological piece yeah. pulled out from your past. In Blue Jay, it's, it's a cassette tape. Yeah. And on the tape is a recording of you and Sarah Paulson's character yeah. pretending that you were married. Mm -hmm. And in Togetherness, it's a document of things you didn't, like a time capsule yeah. of things you didn't want to forget. And I wondered about if that is a window into your process even now of trying to connect with the impulses that, that will still connect with audiences. 100%. And, and the difference between what it feels like at 2.30 in the morning when you wake up with a quarter of a song idea and like you go to the dark corner of your house and you pick up that guitar, you get on that piano and you start pounding away at it and chasing it. And it's nothing verbose, it's not intellectual, it's just so in the core. Yeah. And filmmaking is a highly synthesized form that usually requires communication, intense collaboration. You gotta be good with words to get your crew members around you and, and to synthesize a 90 minute piece of art involves your brain a ton. And so what I am trying to do with movies like Blue Jays is bring as much of that that subconscious, gut-like generator into the filmmaking process as I can. You know, that's part of why we shot the movie on black and white. I was like, why are you shooting this in black and white? And I was like, I don't know, I just feel like it should be in black and white. If I go into my brain now, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of as much shit as possible so I can just get down to the bare minimum. There's two people in it, there's two colors filming those people, you know, that kind of feeling. And um, I mean, it's funny, I'm like looking at us right now and it's just like, all right, boo-hoo, two like sad, really successful white guys talking about how they miss, <laughs> miss their childhood, you know? <laughs> it's, like, kind of ridiculous. Um, but I, at the same time, I'm, like, I, I'm kind of moving past that, too, and just being like, you know what? I, I kind of, it is what I am at this point. And, and it, it connects. It, it, yeah. The truth is, if that's your feeling and your upbringing, yeah. I, I think that that is universal. I think the idea that when we're kids and we can be anything, yeah. you gotta look at all the people you graduated with and all the people you grew up with. Yeah. And in some ways, they gotta be looking at you guys now and saying, they stayed true to themselves. It's definitely a different experience going back to my high school reunion and the, than the first one at 10 years where they were like, oh boy, <laughs> you, you okay, you know? And, and I am, you know, I mean, all false modesty aside, I'm like, really proud that we've been able to, you know, I mean, honestly, just make a living doing what we wanted to do, and we've been able Does to it stick feel like to that? it. Does it feel like you spent so long just figuring out how to not have to give up? Like, because I'm sure in that, in that pocket of time between 18 and 25, yeah. I'm sure there were times when you questioned the whole plan, right? I did, you know, and I, I would basically convince myself, I was like, okay, I got an English degree from, from college, and so like, if I have to teach, I'll teach, and, and I'll just make my stuff on the side as a hobby for the rest of my life, and that's, okay, maybe that's what's gonna happen. You know, I always had good grades, and I always felt like I could make that happen, um, but I didn't want that to happen, you know, and I knew deep down I would feel like, you know, I probably, uh, I probably failed a little bit, you know? Um, and then there are, there are other versions of that where after we made the puffy chair and I was more in my late 20s where I was, it was much closer and easier to quote unquote sell out. Like we had some serious money offers on the table to be like, you know, a lot of times what you get in that phase is you get the, will you come fix our broken movie situation where they're like, we have this movie star who has set aside eight weeks for us to shoot we have this script, it's broken. Um, we're gonna start shooting in eight weeks. Would you come on board to rewrite it and direct it? And we'll pay you gobs and gobs of money to do it. And we had those opportunities. And what we stopped would you? Torture ourselves. Because ultimately, that movie was gonna have our name on it. And ultimately, the DNA of that movie was so flawed, and what they needed that movie to be to make its money back was 
bad in our opinion. Um, and there's a reason why people were passing on it and was coming to us, you know? And so we had that opportunity quite a few times. And every time we just kind of like, we do this thing to, to each other when we're having a hard time making decisions. We just say, close your eyes, don't think about it, you know? And as soon as we did that, every time we're just like, this is not our movie. This is not our movie. Do you think you could Those have done that if you didn't have your brother to sit down with you? Like if you were if you were sort of navigating yeah. this on your own, probably and an opportunity not. It's, it's hard for me to extricate Jay from any decision because he is me and I am him. But um, I can't imagine I would have been able to turn down half a million dollars to do a movie when I was at that phase and when I was scared that I was going to be broke and you know. Katie and I wanted to get married, all this stuff going on, you know, it's a lot. Yeah, I think it's a mark of an artist to be able to turn down something that makes total logical financial yeah. sense. Yeah, oof, that was brutal. That was really brutal to do that, and we did it a bunch of times. Did you do it because you had sort of a stated goal in mind? It wasn't like I had a manifesto, you know, um, but, um, you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you, like, it, it was less about, at that time, the raw integrity of the decision as opposed to you shouldn't do this because it will make a bad movie. But it was, it was a little fear-based of like, well, we've just made a movie that's gotten great reviews and we're now like indie darlings. Like, we'll erase all of that if we go make a bad studio movie and that will be on us and we'll lose everything we've been building so far. So you were savvy enough you know? to understand that. Yeah, I kind of was like, this is not just like... I want to have more integrity and be a man. It was also like, you could blow everything here, you know? Because um, as a filmmaker, like, you make one bad movie and you're kind of out, you know? Um, in the studio system, that is. Um, so, so then what we ended up doing is I wrote this script, Baghead, which ended up being our second movie. And I was like, this will be great. I can make this movie for like $50,000. I'll go around town. I'll ask a bunch of financiers to come give us like $250,000 which is so cheap to make a movie that could get into Sundance and sell. And they won't blink. They'll just give it to us. And all I want is I'll say, just give me the money. When we sell the movie, I'll take uh, half of what, it's, what it sells for. You take half what it sells for. It's like indie rock deals. You know? Right, right. Like, It'll be great. 50-50. And I took it around town, and everybody wanted to finance it. And I was like, I found the model. This is incredible. And we took meeting after meeting, and every single one of them couldn't keep their fucking hands out of the cookie jar. They wanted to make script changes. They said, well, we want to put an accountant on set to know how you're spending the money. I said, you don't need to worry about that. My widgets of how I make it cheaply are my widgets, and you don't need to think about it. Just, just cut us the check. If $250,000, is it worth it to you to have a really good, and it's a horror movie, it'll sell. You right. know? And none of them could do it. So immediately, again, it wasn't an integrity move. I was like, fine, we'll just go. And what I was lucky enough to do is I had just signed my first writing deal to write something. So we took the money, we, some of the money we made from that, put it in a baghead, and then we went there. And then, you know, we, we ended up selling the movie for, you know, about 15 times what we made it for. And, and I was glad because I would have lost money if I had had those financiers to cut them in. And, every, and one of the financiers was really sweet. After, the day after it sold, he sent me a text and he said, Crow, not so tasty. And, <laughs> and I was like, man, you're really cool. I really dig you. Thank you for sending that. But after that, that's where Jay and I were like, hold on. What we thought was the last ditch solution of we'll finance it ourselves is actually the best. I didn't have to deal with anybody, and we took that money, and then we were able to share it with our cast and crew, who had all worked for free, and we're like, we got, we might have a model here. You know, it's so funny to hear you talk about that, because the number one rule in Hollywood Don't put your money is into your stuff. don't use your own money. Yeah. And, and That's you guys, my number one rule. Use, use your own money. If you make it for a price that you know you can make it back. I try to say basically like, if I shit the bed and make this thing terribly, will I still make X amount of dollars that I spent on it because that person's in it and this? Probably. Then I go ahead and do it. You know, it sounds like you had a manifesto. Yeah. Like you look at your track record. I fell into it. I really did not have a manifesto. It's amazing. I went on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. I think there were 37 projects mm -hmm. on there attached to your name. And so I did the math. I yeah. averaged out the scores. You have a 74% career spanning it's great great math it's unprecedented that you would have that high of a percentage rating over the course of your career as an actor executive producer director writer every project you've been involved in and to look at that and basically say you've gone against 
the conventional advice and conventional wisdom of 100 years of Hollywood film history and how to do <laughs> yeah. things. And it's just, it's like, it's the most inspiring story for an artist to see that you can be exactly who you are, look at something and make your own decision about what, and, and not need to wait for advice yeah. or wait to get in the right room or meet your mentor and still find a way to do it yourself. I mean, it's gotta be, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's something to aspire in, in any life, let alone, let alone you know, a filmmaker, just any life, to, to do it on your own terms. You must, you must be just so... I, well, first of all, it's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. I don't always see it that way because, of course, I'm on the inside of it. You know? And then the immediate thing that happens to me as you're wrapping up there um, is, is really the true definition of me. Is The end of that sentence is, you must just be so happy and proud of yourself. And yeah. the answer is... No, it doesn't really make me any happier. <laughs> it's, this, it's this thing that I've done. I'm still always nostalgic. I'm still always hunting for a childlike kid in me and the thing that, you know, uh, is going to make my days just bright and brilliant. And, and I will never find that, you know, because uh, that's just what life is, I think, you know. And but while, if you found while, it, you wouldn't be an artist. Yeah, I mean, that's just what I am, you know. Yeah. So um, it's very validating to hear all that stuff, and, and it's great, and... You know, um, the truth is, like, uh, I'll still never be happier than playing drums in the back of the shed. I'm still chasing that. Well, we're all the better for it. So. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, with me. man. This is really nice. Yeah, great to talk to you. Hey folks, that's our show today. Thanks for listening. I just want to take a minute and thank you all for tuning in to Off Camera. And listen, if you have any comments, criticisms, suggestions, ideas, you just want to drop me a line and say hi, please do. My email address is sam at offcamera.com and I would love to hear from you. And if you love the show, please don't keep it a secret. Tell all your friends about Off Camera so we can keep bringing you these conversations. Thanks for listening. See you next time, Off Camera.